Uh, my name is Chris Anderson. I'm a professor of politics and policy in the European Institute here at the LSE. And my job is to welcome you to this wonderful event tonight and then also moderate the discussion that we're going to have. Um, so the European Institute, which is hosting this lovely event, has its motto as study Europe, understand the world. And speaking of the world and Europe, football is, of course, the world's biggest and most popular sport. Europe is the continent with the biggest leagues. It's home to UEFA. It's home to FIFA, the world's most powerful governing bodies, I'd say. Um, we have with us a panel of experts who, uh, from the world of journalism, elite clubs, regulatory bodies, who will discuss issues of economics and politics, as befits the London School of Economics and Political Science, of course. Um, and the real question we have tonight is, is the path that football is on sustainable? Can we keep doing what we're doing, or where is football going to be in the next 20 to 25 years or so? We have about 90 minutes. I don't anticipate any substitutions or injuries. <laughs> there might be a couple of, no VAR either. Um, we, we might have a couple of added minutes, but generally we have 90 minutes. We'll spend about an hour talking amongst ourselves, and then we'll open it up for questions from the audience. Um, and so let me set the scene just a tiny bit. Uh, 25 years ago, 1994, I was living in the US. Um, the US had just had a World Cup, very successful one, um, but it didn't have European football on TV. I couldn't find it anywhere on the telly. There wasn't a professional football league, MLS. The league came into being in 1996. It just celebrated its 26th, no, 20-something season, 24th season. Seattle Sounders beat Toronto FC the other day in front of 70,000 people. The Americans now get up on Saturday mornings religiously to watch the Premier League, maybe even at 7 o'clock, right? If the Americans in the audience will know this, it's become a thing. Football has become a thing. Um, in the early 90s, some of the people on this panel were very busy uh, looking to reform the top competitions in football. We have with us, so in the summer of 1994, as you might recall, AC Milan won the newly rebranded, newly rebranded UEFA Champions League. Um, in the 1994-95 season, AC Milan yet again reached the final, yes. but lost to Ajax, sorry, Humberto, 1-0 um, in Vienna. Seventh. 87th minute. 87th minute, that hurt. still hurts. Um, but it's easy to forget uh, when we talk about the future that football in Europe, questions about football in Europe and conversations about reforming football in Europe have been ongoing for a really long time. Competitions have been reformed and reformed. Um, Wikipedia tells us in 94, compared to the previous edition of the European Cup, Radical changes were made to the format of the tournament due to the recently expired contract that bound UEFA to the European Broadcasting Union for the transmission of the final. And this gave occasion for a general review of the format. And here we sort of see a clear link between broadcasting and, and the, the fortunes of football in Europe and how football is played at the European level. I'm not going to bore you with the details of the reforms, but clearly the Champions League took off. And those who follow football know that the Champions League has become an incredibly popular um, football competition. I'd say next to the FIFA World Cup, the biggest one in the world, uh, with broadcasting rights that are worth billions of pounds. 
Those of you who are interested in politics, you might remember Judge Weir, the AC Milan striker, who now is, of course, the president of Liberia. So those of you interested in African politics, there's a link here to politics. We're not going to talk about it tonight, though. Um, and the former Yugoslavia was not able to compete in 1994 in the Champions League. Um, it was forbidden from participating due to UN economic sanctions. How the world has changed, if you think about the amazing footballing talents that we see in that part of the world every day these days. Women's football. The world of women's football has changed radically. In 1995, we only had the second FIFA World Cup, Women's World Cup, that is. It's held in Sweden, if you remember, if any, anyone was there. It was won by Norway. They beat Germany in the final. The sem semifinals of that World Cup were watched by around three to 4,000 people in the stadium. The final was watched by 17,000. And there was very little professional women's football to speak of 25 years ago. Last year's Women's World Cup, I'm sure you couldn't escape it, was a huge success. It was a global event um, with full stadiums and huge viewerships. Here in England, the other day, we had the English women lose Germany, two to one, sorry, for the <laughs> England fans, happy for the Germany fans, in front of 80,000 people at Wembley, right? The other day, we had a great match at, at, uh, at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in front of almost 40,000 people. Um, but the everyday football, women's football, is still different, right? Uh, the top leagues here in England and Germany attract roughly 1,500 people per match. It's different in terms of the gates. It's different in so many other ways from the men's game. One question we'll hopefully talk about a little bit tonight is what should be the next step for women's football? But speaking of England... This is one that I think some people in the audience might know something about. The 1992 to 1997 inaugural TV rights deal for the Premier League was worth 191 million pounds. That was about 30 million a year, 38 million, I'm sorry, a year, about 640,000 pounds per game that broadcasters were willing to pay. From 2016 to 19, the most recent Premier League deal was worth 5.1 billion pounds. So about 1.7 billion a year and about 10 million per game. The league has become a global behemoth, attracting players, coaches, owners from all over the world, with people, probably more people watching in China live than here in England on any given weekend. But the top European leagues, of course, trying to keep pace with big new broadcasting deals in Spain and so on. For the marketing people in the audience, the most followed person in the world on social media, of course, is Cristiano Ronaldo. The most followed person in the world is a footballer. So what does it all mean? How do we get here? But more importantly, where do we go from here? Is all well with European football? Or are there issues that require attention? So let me introduce the people who really should be speaking to these questions. On my left, on your right here, is Alistair Bell. He's Deputy General Secretary of FIFA. He's a Scottish qualified lawyer and has extensive knowledge in European Union law and sports law. But before joining FIFA in 2018, he was General Counsel and Director of Legal Affairs at UEFA. So he moved from UEFA to FIFA. And before joining UEFA, he was a lawyer in, in private practice in Brussels and London, advising clients on, on EU law generally and competition law in particular, we're really pleased he's here. Next to him is Umberto Gandini, 
who may not need an introduction to many of you if you're an Italian football fan. He's the former vice chairman of the European Club Association, the former CEO of AS Roma, and former CEO of AC Milan. He's the former vice chairman of the UEFA Club Competitions Com uh, Committee and a member of the Stakeholders Committee at FIFA. During his tenure at AS Roma, I'd like you to know the club qualified for the Champions League twice, reaching the semifinals in 1718, the furthest they have reached in 30 years. No causality implied, but <laughs> they obviously did well. During his career, he's contributed to the participation of six UEFA Champions League finals, four UEFA Super Cup finals, four Intercontinental Cup FIFA uh, Club World Cup finals, and to the victory of six Serie A championship titles in Italy. Next to him, we're pleased to have with us Ebru Koksal, who is chair of women in football and a former FIFA and UEFA consultant. So Ebru has a fascinating life story, um, I have come to find out. Her life is inextricably uh, tied to football, but her background is in finance. Well, we can talk about how finance might be similar to football at some point. <laughs> Uh, she began a professional career in New York as a financial uh, analyst at Morgan Stanley, and then she returned to her native Turkey in 1992 to serve as a senior manager at Citibank, a post she held until 1999 when she joined AIG's private equity fund as a VP. And then her life took a turn, an interesting turn. It, it changed when the fund chose to invest in Galatasaray, SK. <laughs> What began as a six-month stint at the club turned into a new career for this reformed economist. She, she was brought on as CFO in 2001 and then became managing director of Galatasaray shortly thereafter. Following the merger of football stadium and marketing companies, Ebru was named CEO of Galatasaray and also elected to the board. This is what I like. In 2010, she became the first and to date only woman to be elected to the executive board of the European Club Association. A year later, she became the first and only, the only is not the not so good part. The first is good, right? The only, not so great. Uh, General Secretary of the Turkish Football Generation. Between 2012 and 17, she worked as a consultant at FIFA and UEFA. Um, she's a graduate of Brown and Harvard Business School and received the Making the Difference Award by Harvard Business School's Executive Education in 2018. Last but never least is Gabriele Marcotti, who if you watch television, you will recognize immediately. I've gone to football matches with Gabriele, and it's hard to get to the seats because everyone wants to take a selfie with Gabriele. Um, he's a senior writer for ESPN and a correspondent for Italian sports newspaper Corriere dello Sport. As a journalist and broadcaster, he has covered five World Cups, four European Championships, and 16 Champions League finals. He was a columnist for the Times of London for 16 years before moving to his full-time role at ESPN last summer, and he's the author of four books. He has, his work has appeared in many outlets, among others, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and the Italian da uh, daily Corriere dello Sport, as we said already. If you're on social media, we mentioned social media before, we have a hashtag for tonight. It's hashtag LSE football. Only say nice things, please. No, be free. It's a, it's a, it's a free country. We can still say what we like. Um, I should shut up at this point, sit down, and ask some questions. So welcome, everyone. Let's talk about football.
And it's hard to talk about football in Europe without talking about money. So let's talk about money. How sustainable is the model of football? Where's the money going to come from? Will the money keep flowing into football? Gabriela? Well, it's, it's a fair question um, because we've obviously seen an enormous boom in, in the revenues flowing into football. Um, I think the general sense I have is that the, the, the sources are going to change or evolve, right? Traditional, and as somebody who works for a, a broadcaster, I think traditional linear broadcasting uh, revenues, um, it's not something you could necessarily count on to the same, to the same degree. We, we, had a, we had a real boom for a long time, partly often because of competition uh, in different markets, local broadcasters. Now in many markets, there is, and I'll use one of my fancy LSE words, there is, a, or an economist word, uh, there is a monopsony. Ooh. Is that good? Yeah, yeah, I got it right, right? Well, there's only, you get a special credit for that. There's only one buyer. Um, or, or de facto. So you're seeing that, for example, in the Premier League, you know, the last fabulously successful, the domestic rights have, have, uh, have actually declined. Um, <clears throat> I pulled out this old presentation from, that I had from the Premier League where they were sort of projecting how much their overseas rights were going to be in, uh, uh, in 2019. And, you know, they're about $2 billion short. Uh, I think two billion per cycle short of of where they thought they would be, so I think there are questions raised there. So 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 I think while obviously there's untapped markets and and it's going to continue, I think the money's going to needs to come from different sources. I think clubs are are realizing this, um, but I also think you know in mature markets there's only so much you can do. There's only so much you can do in terms of of, of raising ticket prices. You can build new stadiums, and sometimes that's a real estate play, but you know, there is a ceiling that you reach. Once you've built your brand spanking new stadium and you've put more people in it, there's only so much you can do. Um, certainly, I think that's a sense I get. And the other concern is where is the money flowing? And the money is, is flowing to the top, and, and you know, we'll get to that, but there's a very evident polarization, which is caused by, by many different factors. Um, and it goes hand in hand with globalization. You mentioned Cristiano uh, before. You know, I, I bet that if you're going to talk to, if, if you were to speak to, to I know, a cohort of 14-year-olds, they could probably name Real Madrid's, you know, here in England, for example, they could probably name Real Madrid's starting lineup more readily than they could name West Ham's, for example, which obviously is a London club. So all these factors coming together, um, allied with one other big factor, which is that I see a lot of people who look like they're under the age of 30, and so congratulations, others might just be youthful looking, but <laughs> many of them don't like paying, for example, for premium content. Now, the old subscription model television, I think is really hard. I'm not going to ask how many of you actually pay for Sky or whatever, because that would be unkind, but I, I would hazard a guess it's not... It's not what it used to be. It's not what people thought it might be going forward. Television companies have been very much affected by this. Um, and I think the way people consume as well is also, is also different um, and perhaps more difficult to monetize or more difficult for people to figure out how to monetize. You know, I can have a, a fun Snapchat account. How am I making money off that? How do I do that? Do I have to be clever? There's a lot of people talking a good game around that. So all these factors together coupled with 
an elephant in the room in the background, which is that people don't necessarily enjoy watching sport as much as they did. I know some will disagree, but um, they, some people don't enjoy watching sport overall, and some people don't in, simply still follow sport, but they won't enjoy sitting there for two hours. So does it feel like you were reaching a ceiling and it's become more uncertain? I think we are reaching a ceiling in some of the ways in which we consume sport and some of the ways in which we monetize sport. And I think the challenge for the people leading the game is to figure out how do we either raise the ceiling or, um, or find new ways uh, to, to produce revenue or possibly to go and level the playing field a little bit so that because I think where there's a local connection to, to a team where you're not just living it through television, you're not just living it remotely, um, you know, I, I think that's, there's still room for growth there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a challenge because, you know, if you're the champion of most countries and then you go and you play Liverpool or Manchester City and you get whooped 4-0, it's not fun. And, you know, younger kids are like, wait, why am I going to watch... Um, you know, why don't we watch Vizsla Krakow, my local team, when I can sit at home and watch Liverpool or Manchester City or Barcelona or, or whoever? Umberto, do you agree? Does it feel like that to you? Uh, you told me earlier that you were involved in, in acquiring rights to, to broadcast football games quite a few years ago. Um, you've, you've followed this, this industry obviously very closely. You've been very involved in it. Do you agree with Gabriela that it feels like we're hitting, hitting a ceiling? Uh, well, uh in, in what Gabriele answered to you, there are so many options uh, to follow that uh, we could stay here for a few days. But uh, in general terms, uh, yes, there is a problem. Uh, the general problem is that uh, audience is aging as far as TV broadcast, uh, the way we consume, uh, and especially uh, younger generation consume sports now is uh, in many, many different ways. Uh, no longer the TV, as uh, Gabriele said, the level of attention for two hours uh, or one hour a game or one hour and a half a game is not there anymore. And there are so many things that you can do at the same time thanks to digital uh, social media tools and, and, and stuff. Uh, so there is one problem there. The second problem is that uh, uh, people like to be involved anymore, more than before. The experience uh, is uh, becoming more important than what you witness when you watch a game. So uh, smart arenas, uh, stadia, infrastructure is becoming very, very important. The way to uh, convert uh, digital followers into revenues still becomes uh, subject to be the next uh, uh, holy grail, Mm -hmm. because I don't think today we yet know how to monetize all the uh, inventory that is created and all the followers that we have on social media. Uh, Esports is another factor that I think football has to be very careful because, as I said, uh, level of attention lower, uh, younger audience uh, needs to do different things, be protagonist, be part of it. And uh, today is not very simple. Uh, Streaming is going to be a factor or not. You know, I remember that the last uh, uh, bid of uh, Premier League, they were all talking about Amazons and Facebook being a part of it, then very little. Now Netflix, now maybe Disney Plus, what's happening next? So it's really difficult to understand. One thing for sure, as far as the European uh, 
game is concerned, so the Champions League to say, every time that the Champions League, the Champions League has been growing by 25 to 30 percent every cycle because of change of format, because of more interest. Now, if uh, the Champions League will stay the way it is, the idea for 21-24 expectation is probably 5% increase. And this is going to be a problem. So that's pretty much the, the real story behind the next format. So how the Champions League will be played in order to be attractive to a bigger players, uh, uh, to have bay, bigger paychecks, and the opportunity to have more money available. So, so one way to make the game sustainable is to grow revenues. Yeah. Then there's also the cost base, of course, right? So let's talk about financial fair play for just a second, right? One way to contain and make uh, contain the sort of uh, the model or make the model sustainable is to sort of say, let's save these owners from themselves, right? Let's find a way so they don't spend too much money of the money that they are taking in so that they can continue to have or they can achieve some level of either asset appreciation in the football club or profitability. Both Alistair and Umberto, you've been involved in, yeah. in writing some of these rules. Is that a fair way to think about it? Um, I come after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think financial fair play has been relatively successful in its own terms. If you consider that the overall objective when the system came in was to reduce the level of indebtedness in European football. I think when the system came in it was uh, something like 1.7 billion yeah. net indebtedness in European football and after a few years of financial fair play, living within your means and so on, that level of indebtedness had decreased to you know, net virtually nothing. Now, there have probably been some other uh, less positive side effects from the financial fair play system, but given that its main overarching objective was to increase the, the financial health of clubs in Europe, I think uh, on that level it's probably been, uh, been successful. Now, if I could just say one thing about um, the first question and how Gabrielle answered it, which, which I agree with, but this is more from a global perspective rather than a European perspective, which is I think that there is, it's true that uh, there are certain challenges that football faces, especially in, in mature markets, and uh, by definition there are quite some challenges that come with operating in, in mature markets. But I would say also that in most of the world, football is not a mature market. It's a developing market. We talk about football as the world sport, and it is to a large extent, but it's really only substantially really developed in Europe, mostly in Western Europe and in, in South America. Not many other places has it reached anything like its uh, development potential. When you consider that half of the population of the planet, so like 4 billion people, watched the part of the FIFA World Cup in Russia, and that a billion people watched the Women's World Cup in France. These are, you know, these are really extraordinary figures, and it suggests to me that uh, around the world there's still a huge uh, appetite for, for football. And the challenge will be to, uh, to develop it in those new markets, if you want to be very mercantile about it, uh, new countries, new opportunities, where, which exist undoubtedly in China, in India, 
in North America, in Africa, as most places in the world, there is very significant interest in uh, in football, and it will be the challenge for the the governing bodies at all levels to try to ensure that that you know that development potential is is realised. Hopefully, in a kind of a democratic and inclusive way, that will present certain challenges, especially with regard to the situation of, of Europe, which is where the uh, you know, which is the economic centre of, of football these days. But if we're looking to really expand the game and expand the opportunities, we'll have to look at it on a, on a global level, I would say. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're saying, yes, financial fair play, it, it, was, it was designed to address a specific problem that, yeah. that was existing at the time in European football, we came up with some regulations around that. We helped solve some of that problem, maybe much of that problem. Uh, but don't forget about those revenues. Those revenues have not been uh, optimized or maximized at this point in time. I wouldn't. It's not so much that the revenues have not been op- optimized. I mean, I would say that the, if if you see the uh, interest, the overall level of, of interest from from people, you know, fans, consumers, call them what you will, you can see that there is a massive. Uh, level of interest in football around the world and I think uh, what you have to do is create conditions create competitions create structures and leagues and environments where that potential can be uh, be realized uh, that's that's one of the main challenges because it is certainly true that there are you know in pockets of the world you could say that you know the Premier League which has been spectacularly successful the most successful domestic league Maybe it has plateaued in the UK in terms of the UK market. And, of course, it wouldn't be helped if there isn't very significant competition on the, on the buying side. I mean, when I was at UEFA, the biggest ever contract we did for the Champions League, which we sold on a territorial basis, was the UK, and it was because we had a very heavy competition between Sky and BT. So two very heavily capitalized big pay TV broadcasters bidding against each other's for the rights. That is not a situation which you would uh, see in most European countries. And it was, it was particularly, you know, it was good for the, for the UK market at the time. Uh, as Gabriella mentioned, I think, you know, in terms of consumer trends, how people watch football in future will probably change. It probably will be a more personalized, customized experience, perhaps less 90-minute live viewing. Uh, We'll have to think of new, more sort of innovative ways to present uh, the sport to people that will also be in tune with, uh, how would I put it, you know, like millennial tastes and uh, social media. But that also creates massive opportunities. So, you know, the industry, and I will call it an industry, you know, it has to evolve in a way that caters to the overall level of uh, expectation and interest from people, from fans. And we will have to adapt and be flexible and be smart in order to, uh, to realize that. I'm going to skip Which to is not something that governing bodies are very good at. I'm going to skip to Ebra <laughs> real quick and say, ask her. Uh, Gabriela said something about a lot of the benefits of, of, of the success of global football in the last 25 years have flown to the top, right? It's sort of, yeah. yes, the, the big clubs have, are doing really well. The big stars are being paid enormous amounts of money. Um, 
Isn't that a problem? That's, uh, is, is that okay? Is, is that sort of it'll, that's just how the market works? Or if you put on your gala hat, if you put on <laughs> yeah. your Turkish Football Federation hat? And the reformed economist hat, the so I have to give hat. a few numbers. I'm dying to give a few numbers. But <laughs> um, if we look at the top 20 clubs in Europe, 10 years ago, they were making collectively 1.2 billion euros. This year, they're making 8.3 billion euros and um, they're accounting for almost half of the global football economy so the growth has been significantly skewed towards these large clubs and um, of course the UK has been a big driver in that um, another statistic that blew my mind was in the last 10 years the 20 UK clubs uh, among them are making 1.8 billion euros per annum more in TV rights. In the remaining four markets, 78 clubs making 1.6 billion more. Remaining 400 clubs in the rest of Europe, sorry, 600 clubs in the rest of Europe making only 400 million euro more. So the growth has been really driven by UK and also the top clubs. Real Madrid this year made 750 million, and um, in the top 20, the 20th club is more around 150. So but is that one a problem? to five. Why is it a problem? Uh, why it's a problem is it's becoming extremely difficult to, comp to compete on level playing field. Um, if you looked at the Champions League groups, you almost can guess who will be the top two that goes on to the next round. And um, Champions League has become such an important revenue component in everybody's income statement, not just the smaller countries, smaller clubs. Uh, but even this year, for example, when uh, Juventus, Southampton or Arsenal didn't qualify for Champions League, they immediately dropped three to five or six points in the Deloitte Money League ranking. So even for those clubs, it's an important factor. And the new cycle is paying out 38.5% more compared to the previous cycle. So it's it's. it's, it's the biggest thing in most clubs' lives to qualify for Champions League and at least play the group stage. And what, what that's also doing to the whole ecosystem is um, competitiveness prevents clubs from investing more in their youth, being patient to really raise talent, wait three to five years, seven years for uh, homegrown talent to start contributing to the teams. They spend less on educating, um, you know, better coaches or administrators. They spend less on their women's teams or they don't even have a women's team. So I think this uh, trying to remain at the top of the game has consequences to the rest of the, the pyramid, football pyramid. So I have two questions about that. One of them is I hear you say football is becoming boring. The Champions League is becoming boring. If it's always the same teams, give or take the occasional run by an Ajax, the occasional run by a smaller club, even though thinking about Ajax as a smaller club is kind of crazy in historical terms, um, the, the product's going to be compromised if this keeps happening. That's part of what I hear you say. Um, and, and 
Not necessarily. Okay. The predictability doesn't reduce the quality. Okay, the quality of football is enormously what Gabriel was good. saying, because people don't want to watch, you know, Krakow maybe, but they're happy to watch, you know, uh, the, the El Clasico several times <coughs> a year, because it's always good football, good quality. Right. And yes, maybe it's a little bit predictable, uh, but still, it's the, the quality is high. And uh, I think the threat is not that the... Uh, winner can be guessed easily, but it's more about the younger generation and their consumption habits, as both Umberto and Gabriela pointed out too. Sorry, is it, sorry if I jump in, Chris, the journalist, I mean, mm. is it corollary to that? I mean, one of the complaints that, that I get from uh, people who are involved in, in clubs and say, you know, outside the so-called big five leagues is that, or even actually France, is that Domestically, because of the, the hype and the star power and the, the competitiveness at the very top, it's sometimes difficult. It's difficult for them to well maximize their revenue, their TV revenues in their domestic leagues, and sometimes it's difficult for them to to, to drive their product domestically. Because if you're in a mid-table team in the seventh, eighth, or tenth biggest league in Europe. And you have the opportunity to watch, just to sit at home, and in the same weekend you can watch Barcelona, Manchester City, and whatever else. It's difficult for you to then get up and say, all right, I'm going to go and, and watch AIK Stockholm in the rain. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, is, yeah. is, is, and is that a challenge that maybe in, in Turkey smaller clubs or, or mid-sized clubs face? Actually, Turkey is very lucky because we have the sixth largest TV contract in Europe. Um, uh, I think our problem is more about not spending that money well. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, we do generate good revenues, right. but it's not necessarily spent in the right place. And uh, too much uh, purchasing of expensive uh, older players uh, that uh, the presidents and coaches think would contribute <clears throat> to the short-term success of the team and also draw attention of the fans, but that doesn't always work uh, that well. I think that's a problem. But yes, the domestic leagues, not in Turkey, but in many other countries, especially in Asia, are not even getting the one-tenth of the attention that the broadcasters are paying to European leagues. So it is a huge problem in that sense. So, Umberto, does this mean inevitably, if you fast forward, that there will have to be a European Super League? Well, <laughs> it goes on and on and on and on. Well, would, would you advocate it? If, well, I, I would like to cherry pick a few points. Okay. Uh, the first one is depolarization, which is the most important effect, side effect of the uh, financial fair play. Uh, as Alita said, you know, the main goal was to reduce debt, and that was a great success. <laughs> Uh, another effect was to teach the owners uh, to be diligent and control themselves somehow. On the other side, owners were looking for opportunities to uh, have a safeguard towards fans. Oh, you are not investing that much in play. So I can't because of financial play. So it was a good excuse you know, to, to keep numbers under control. But the way it's been built, so uh, live within your means, uh, created a situation where those who have or had revenues became bigger and bigger, and those who were trying to challenge didn't have the opportunity to invest money anymore because they could not uh, create a loss or a 
how can I say, a controlled number of the losses over three-year period, you know, which were not good enough. So the other tendency was to inflate somehow the commercial revenues of the other revenues. Then, you know, cases that are under scrutiny or were under scrutiny in the past will be scrutinized in the future. Uh, you know, name them, PSG, Man City, uh, AC Milan, for example, uh, for other reasons. Uh, uh, so there are situations where uh, the financial play has contributed to create what I call today, and not only me, I mean, it's a situation uh, that's uh, worth uh, remembering. Uh, back in the years, when I started, you know, early 90s, uh, Professional football was, for FIFA, non-amateurs. If you go back, you know, most of you guys were not there, but at the Olympics we only have amateur athletes, no professionals. Uh, so in order to speak to FIFA, you had to go to your FA and ask your FA to contact FIFA and make the question and then wait for the question back. Now we sit at boards, we are part of the game. It's a different environment from the governing side point of view, and governance has changed a lot. But uh, at that time, it was amateur game and non-amateur. Now, you have the professional game, which is obviously dominating, but within the professional game, you have a sort of a elite of the top 20 global teams who are playing a different game, who are the, those who are creating 500 million revenues more and go up, where they have uh, athletes who are making 30 million a year, uh, who are now uh, companies, enterprises, no longer only players. And they play a game which is a different game. Then you have 50 to 80 European professional clubs, the Ajax, as you said, or others, that, that they are doing their own business, they are trying to compete, sometimes Leicester win the Premier League, uh, sometimes uh, Arsenal uh, uh, or Tottenham goes to the final. So, I mean, Arsenal is a big club, Tottenham too, so I'm sorry for that. It was not, it was not the right example, but uh, I, I was confused for that. But, you know, Leicester was a good one, or, or Ajax. Uh, or Roma as well, when Roma went to the semi-final with Liverpool. Uh, but they are just doing their own business, trying to break even and be competitive and so on. And then you have, as Ebru says, probably 600 clubs who are just there to play. And, and they need resources, they don't have resources. Probably the best resources they have is trading players. Uh, as Ebru says, you know, investment in youth sector, creating the next Ronaldos or the next Messi's and hoping to uh, cash in on that and go to the next season and so on and so on. So I think this is very important. So the Super League is a sort of existing in a certain way, not as a competition itself, but uh, there is definitely a group of clubs which are different. And <coughs> honestly speaking, I was always against uh, artificial competitive balance. Uh, the only way uh, we have seen over the years is try to grab those who are flying away and bring them down with regulations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you get to a point in which it's probably better for the game if they go away. And you have a different competition up there, like the NBA is, for example, for, for the World Basket. And you always have, uh, you know, Real Madrid who can beat Charlotte Hornets or who can beat uh, Los Angeles Lakers. 
but uh, most of the game, they play a different game. Uh, the, the field, then, is the ultimate judge. And as I said, Leicester can win the Premier League. Uh, I mean, recently, uh, PSG lost uh, with the bottom team in the French League. So things can still happen. But doesn't that sort of... Aren't you, if I take it one step further than what you've said, I'm sort of thinking to myself, so why not acknowledge that reality? Yeah, and one point of view. Maybe allow for minor league, major league teams. What does FIFA think about something like that? Would um, that even be sort of something <clears throat> one could think about? I think uh, I think it probably would. I mean, I think what everyone needs to kind of acknowledge, whether they sort of like it or not, is that the the Super League, which doesn't exist on you know formally, but kind of exists to a certain extent in reality, is just the it's just a product of the economic and legal environment that happened. So basically, after the Bossman case in 1995, which completely deregulated the player transfer market, and following the emergence of uh, pay TV towards the end of the 90s, and then followed by a whole lot of inward investment from other sources, you get to a situation where the, the top talent follows the money. So inevitably, you get more and more uh, higher concentration of top players playing for a small number of teams from a small number of countries. So it's no coincidence that when you mentioned earlier, 95, when AC Milan played against Ajax, that's the last time that Ajax win the Champions League, which is the year of the Bosman case. Mm -hmm. After that case, they can't hang on to any of their players or have a great deal of difficulty hanging on we to their players. Exactly. <laughs> you take, you know, Reich, whoever it was, yeah, yeah. Reichard, Van Basten, you know. No, 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 Kluivert, uh, uh, Davids. Uh, and that's, ju that's just economics. So if that's happened and the law allows that to happen... The guy scored and we bought him. <laughs> okay. No, no, we bought him, we signed him the day after. He's Italian. You know? <laughs> so, it's... Uh, it's um, Maybe there needs to be a reaction of the governing bodies to, to actually to recognize that the environment has changed and you can't necessarily stick with all the old uh, structures and old competitions and kind of uh, ignore the fact that, in many respects, the rules of the game changed. And that's, and that's what's happened, in, certainly in Europe. And not sticking with the, the tried and true is, is obviously something that football has done well over the years. One question that I, I've been thinking about in the aftermath of, of the Women's World Cup is what is the right model for women's football yeah. to progress? Yeah. Should it follow the men's game of having strong national leagues? Uh, the Women's World Cup is obviously a hugely successful event uh, and broadcasters are interested in it. Um, how would you design women's football in the future? If we fast forward 25 years from now, what will the world of women's competition at an elite level look like? Will it mirror the men's game or will it be different? Well, first of all, if you, I mean, in your opening speech, you said that the first World Cup was in 91 and imagine how far we've come in 2019. So the progress has been really, really fast with very, very minimal investment. Um, again, just to give a few numbers and figures uh, from the FIFA accounts, 
2018 Men's World Cup uh, expenses were 1.8 billion. We don't have the 2019 Women's World Cup expenditure expenditures, but 2015 was only 82 million. Imagine how big the difference is, only uh, a small fraction. Then the prize money, 30 million for Women's World Cup and 400 million for Men's World Cup. FIFA has been selling the rights uh, in a bundle uh, and the last World Cup raised $3.5 billion. It's very difficult to say how much of it is women's football, but again, the viewership figures that you just gave um, 3.5 billion versus 1.1 for the women's game. I think compared to the small investment that's been done, the outcome is amazing. So um, in terms of format, I personally don't think there's a need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I think the current formats with the expanded uh, numbers out of tw from 24 going to 32 at the next World Cup uh, that's definitely uh, a good one, but there's still 25% of the world associations that don't have a women's national team, which means they don't have a national league, they don't have clubs, um, they don't have youth development programs. So the first step is really to make sure that every country has a national league, has the youth structures, and has some kind of, I love the CONMEBOL structure, which says to a club that wants to participate in Copa Libertadores, you can't come in if you don't have a women's team as well. I think I'm hearing UEFA might be preparing to have that in the next round of the financial fair play regulations, which I think would be um, a good opportunity to grow women's football. Um, we're hoping for a day when we're not talking about women's football, men's football, but just football, uh, basically. But again, importance of ecosystems. It's not just about investing in teams and players, but making sure that the whole ecosystem catches up. And what I mean by that is currently only 10% of the referees in the world are women. Only 7% of the coaches are women. Only 9% of the executive committee members are women. Only 2% of the presidents and CEOs are women. So we need to invest in the whole ecosystem if we want women's football to grow in the next decade. So, Gabriela, I'm not going to put Alistair on the spot here. Does FIFA need to become more of a development organization then? Do they, do they need to spread around their riches? to develop this ecosystem? Do they have to provide conditional aid, so to speak, in development terms? Well, I think, I think, I think that's what they've been doing. Um, and I know, I Aster can, he's a big boy, can stick up for himself, but I know obviously when we speak of FIFA, for obvious reasons there was a ton of bad press until a couple of years ago. I should stress, I think you've mentioned it before, just to reiterate, you've been there, what, a year and a bit? Okay. Um, so we can't <laughs> I mean, when, when you think about what, what FIFA does very reductively, uh, in addition to organizing competitions at different levels, but their main job, and they collect a big wad of money from the World Cup, and it was a huge point that, that I think Ebru raised, 
bundling the rights together where, you know, you would, oh, you get the Men's World Cup, it's a really valuable thing, and then you've got to take the under-17s and futsal and the women and whatever. So it was really difficult to go and put a, a, a value on it. It also meant there wasn't much investment in it and, and whatever. And I think um, the, the FIFA president has, uh, well, no, he said that that's going to change, it's going to be done differently in, in the next cycle. But a big part of what FIFA does is to distribute money around the world. Um, somebody, I think, made an analogy to sort of the World Bank uh, and, and how it operates. And, you know, being able to get this money, decide what the best practice is on the ground, and say, all right, we will give you this money and we will continue to finance you, but, you know, we need to have certain structures in terms of oversight, in terms of best practice, what's right for your region, and so on. That's something which probably, well, certainly FIFA was remiss on doing under the previous administration. Um, and it's something that I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're committing to doing, to doing now, which is, which is a big step. In terms of the model and the club involvement, I, I, it's a bit beyond my pay grade. I do wonder a little bit about, simply because everywhere we're talking about following the European club model. That, that, that's, that's kind of the idea. Or, or it's ancillaries. In the United States, oh, they form uh, a women's league. Well, they've had three of them, but there's a form of professional women's team. It's so important to have a professional women's league. But it's an enormous country. They have seven teams or nine teams. They're spread all over. The costs are high. As a result, they're saying, yeah, we have professional, we have professional football, but the minimum wage is $15,000 a year. Um, I think the average wage is around $30,000. I think they need to have a good think about what is the right model. Is professional women's football that for everybody to have a professional league? Is, is that what's most important? Is that what's good for the game? Or is it perhaps access? We mentioned the success of the Women's World Cup. It's a rich person's World Cup, frankly. Seven of the eight countries with the greatest number of, women fo of, of registered footballers um, are also seven of the eight who reached the quarterfinal stage. The one exception, I'm proud to say, is Italy. Um, so United States dominates world football. Okay, yeah, big country, lots of money, and they have, I think, 48% of the world's registered women footballers because of Title IX, because of a whole bunch of different reasons. The prize money argument, you know, every dollar they give in prize money is a dollar that they're not spending on development, which is, should be, I think, should be what FIFA should be doing with their money other than sending more prize money to FAs like Australia, like Germany, like the U.S., who are already wealthy. This is a different ar That argument got conflated with equal pay, which, which I support. I think it's a case-by-case -case situation. But the money doesn't go to the, to the women footballers. The money goes to the FA, who then negotiates with the players. And I think there's a risk that we don't think about access, access to, to women who want to play football, um, what is the best way in? And talking to some people, some people have suggested that maybe the model in the shorter term, because international football um, is extremely successful uh, in, in the women's game, far more. I mean, you cited some figures compared to uh, club football. I mean, we're in this country, right? BT Sport, bought, they bought the, they're big supporters of women's football. The Women's Champions League final was not on television in this country. You had to go behind a red button or watch it on YouTube, which, you know, I kind of asked myself, how can that happen in 2019? Why did UEFA, when they sold the rights, not go and say, hey, by the way, 
you're getting this, you must put this on television. So I think we need to think about monos. If we look at cricket and rugby, for example, they've pushed, they've been trying to different, different degrees of success to push the participation base, but in terms of the professional game, the elite game, it's certainly the club game that, that brings in the revenue and that, uh, sorry, the club, not the club, the international game that brings in the revenue and drives the revenue. Could there be a model along those lines where it's not dominated by clubs, but at the elite level it's dominated by the international game, bring in the revenue, and then you trickle it down. And where it's sustainable, you can have professionalism for everybody, and where it's less sustainable, maybe you have central contracts or something like that, but you put the priority on, on access uh, to increase the base of women footballers because right now, like I said, one in two in the world are in the United States. I want to give Alistair a moment to respond, if he cares to, to this just general topic of what FIFA ought to be doing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, um, first of all, I do see FIFA um, should be a kind of football development company. I mean, all the thing, all the organization is meant to do essentially is organize football competitions and pour money back into the development of the game, does some other things, a transfer system regulation and so on. But, but these are the core activities. And uh, I don't think we're nearly as advanced as we should be when it comes to the, uh, I would call it the sort of development economics aspect of our mandate and our, our activities. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, historically as a members organization, we have 211 members, the national football associations around the world, uh, and they all receive money, the same amount of money from FIFA for football development purposes, but it doesn't meet uh, what I would call a more, you know, or a coherent needs-based financing approach. And I think that we should be moving far more in that direction and taking some thinking from organizations such as the World Bank that certainly follows a different model or the European Regional Development Fund or the International Finance Corporation, I don't know what, but more uh, coherent thinking about needs-based funding in order to develop the sport across the world. I think we're doing a better job than historically was done but I still think that we could do a far, uh, a far more effective job if we changed our thinking a little bit, uh, or not a little bit, actually quite a lot, and, uh, and followed, shall we say, more coherent traditional uh, development economics. Mm -hmm. This all happens, as I'm sure you'll appreciate, within the context of a, of a political environment. You know, where you have to secure votes in order to change rules. And there are some vested interests, quite often quite a lot of vested interests, and you have to sort of uh, work hard and use various uh, pressure points to, to change existing structures which have historically suited some people uh, well, but which have uh, not allowed us to, to perform our tasks as effectively as we ought to be doing. Uh, just with regard to the women's game, I think this is where Gabriella was going. I kind of uh, share the feeling, I wouldn't put it higher than that, that the women's football might be uh, a bit different 
from men's insofar as it might be a more more naturally a national team sport as opposed to a club sport. Uh, one of the reasons I think that is because it might be difficult to envisage the sheer numbers of uh, professional women players around the world that would mean that you would have competitive leagues in many, many countries. It's not impossible, but at this, at this stage, at this moment in time, uh, I see it as a, a very, very successful sport at the national team level. I mean, the World Cup was a testament to that. One could never have imagined, even a few years ago, that you'd have a billion people watching uh, the Women's World Cup, but there were, and uh, it was a great event not just from a spectator's point of view, also from a commercial point of view. It was certainly a dumb decision to uh, bundle the rights, which is something that historically FIFA did, and it won't do it again. Um, so, you know, there's, a, there's huge opportunities there, but I don't think there's any inherent reason why the women's game has to evolve in exactly the same way as the men's. I mean, it didn't start from the same place. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to end up in the same place. I have lots and lots and lots more questions, but I don't get to ask them uh, all night long. That's not fair to the audience. So what I want to do now is give people an opportunity to react to what our panelists have said and or just raise any other question that they wish to raise. I think we have some microphones going around, so if you can raise your hand. I think there's a gentleman right there in the middle who went first. And then we've got some more up there as well. Okay. Thank you. Um, I had imagined football was a sport, but I'm a little alarmed that this seems to be a discussion about economics. And UEFA and FIFA seem to be driven by the economics of the game. And in terms of access to sustainability, we seem to have forgotten the ordinary fan who wants to go and watch his local club and can't afford it. And I believe over 20% of youth football games are postponed in this country because there are no all-weather pitches. And I would also uh, question now thinking on women's football in the 20s, 1920s, many women's games had far bigger crowds than men's games on the same day. So I don't think we've progressed that much. Thank you. So we've, we've got two questions, uh, or no, we've got at least one question that has to do with fans. Where do fans fit into this story of, uh, of, of a football industry that's uh, driven by broadcasting rights, is driven by the need to get eyeballs onto the game? Who wants to take that one? Well, you, you cannot have... Uh a football game without spectators. I mean, uh, anybody that would see a game on TV with uh, a lot of empty seats uh, would turn out and go on another channel because uh, it probably the, the, the missing uh, the, the mislink, missing link with the, with the audience, live audience at the game would probably tell you that the game is worthless. Uh, it happens many times if you look, uh, for example, uh, the Middle East leagues, for example, there are players there, there are money there, but there are no fans, and uh, and they don't care. I mean, if they go there, it's a very limited number of people uh, going for that. So I totally agree with the fact that uh, uh, local routes are very important, uh, that uh, uh, spectators, uh, the live audience is very important. So one of the main goals that 
top teams, uh, middle teams, small teams have to do is to have a very strong local connection, have their own fans at the games. The problem today is that the competition is higher and higher and bigger and bigger because you not only are competing against uh, uh, the, the other team, or you are competing against TV, you are competing against uh, social media, you are competing against movies, uh, theaters, streaming, whatever. Uh, and it is not only the problem of uh, live game, it's also the problem of playing the game. So uh, we are looking now at uh, uh, star players who develop their skill by playing at the younger age, uh, in the streets, uh, uh, courtyards, uh, uh, and so on and so on. And now kids are spending more, t- game, more time playing themselves on FIFA or uh, eSports uh, or EA Sports or uh, whatever they are, uh, the other uh, games, uh, than playing themselves. And I think this is a challenge that we as a game have uh, to look at mm-hmm. in general terms. Is this a concern for you, Alistair? Where do fans fan? They don't sit at the table when, when TV rights are negotiated, right? Um, no, I mean, they don't sit at the table, but at the same time, you're never going to, even if you talk in the most economic or, or business type language, unless people are actually interested in the sport, unless they're interested in watching it, engaging it, whether it's a spectator at the stadium or whether it's someone downloading images from their computer, you know, if you ignore the fans, the people, then you won't be successful. So by definition, you have to take their preferences and tastes in, into account. Um, I mean, I understand the, the point made by the gentleman about we're just talking about economics and finance and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, we're at the London School of Economics, if I'm not mistaken, and I guess we wouldn't have been invited here to talk about football if it would not have a big impact on the economy, which it does. I mean, like it or not, I'm not saying that I'm particularly a fan of these things, but it is true that the international market for the transfer of players is an $8 billion market. It's true that the, you know, the TV rights revenues generated by these competitions are enormous, and there are huge economic and legal questions about, about the sport. And uh, I think the task of the, certainly of the governing bodies and the stakeholders is to try to um, harness that, you know, that economic power and use it for the development of the sport at all levels, in all countries, across all genders. I mean, that is supposed to be the job. We've got now football clubs which are owned by sovereign states, whether I'm talking about PSG or Manchester City. That, that's a, these are facts. So you can either sort of be a bit um, upset about that, can't say I'm a great fan of it, but it's there, it's real, and you have to sort of uh, deal with it and adapt uh, accordingly. I think fans are definitely the lifeblood of a club, and they are the dream customers of any brand in the world because you can change your political party, you can move countries, you can change identity, you can divorce your partner, husband, wife, whatever, but you never change your club. So that kind of loyalty doesn't exist in any other industry. And I think when we talked about the future and the potential for revenue growth, that's the area. And unfortunately, it doesn't always, it shouldn't always mean that um, consumption of football should become more and more expensive for the loyal fan. 
but we need to figure out better ways of um, uh, paying back for for their loyalty and support throughout the years. So Me it's too. a challenge to monetize the biggest you know, global fan bases, which I think even the biggest teams have not still cracked yet. I'm going to paraphrase quickly, Umberto. AC Milan is a global brand. You helped build it into a global brand. Um, merchandise, fan shops all over the world, tours in Asia, um, what about the people from Milan? Like, how does it fit together, this sort of, this idea that we have this global well, followership, but we also are a local football club? Well, uh, it is, as, as Ebru said, is, is, it was fundamental. I mean, uh, everything that AC Milan did uh, with, under the Berlusconi ownership was to win trophies, uh, to have the best possible team together to please the audience. Uh, to give the Milan fans in Milan a reason to cheer and, and to be proud of it. Now, uh, time has changed, uh, have changed, uh, and uh, we got to a point now that maybe a player is more important than the team. You said before that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo is the most followed uh, uh, personality on social media. And the people who are following Cristiano Ronaldo, they are not necessarily Juventus fans, and they were not necessarily Madrid fans or Man United fans. Uh, they are players who are becoming bigger than the game. Uh, they are players that they know they cannot play the game without the teams or the national teams, but it's the fact that uh, Cristiano is a 90 million uh, euro cost for Juventus per year. Salary, amortization, uh, commissions, whatever. It is one-fifth or their turnover. Uh, I think that uh, down the line we will see more and more powers to the players mm. uh, because they are what the actors were in our childhood or mm -hmm. uh, back in the years or, or others. And there are a lot of similarities between a football game and a movie. You know, when, when you were talking about AC Milan, you know, we came from uh, a tycoon owner from television. So. TV, broadcast ratings, uh, rights, and advertising were very important. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a 90-minute film, 90-minute movie. We have uh, uh, actors, uh, stars, and uh, uh, normal actor, and uh, uh, complementary, sorry, how do you say, a figurant. Uh, I don't know the English name for that. But anyway, you have uh, directors who are the coaches. You have uh, a referee who's an actor. You have a, an outcome that can be nice or bad. It can be a good movie or a bad movie. You can win or lose the game. But at the end of the day, then the way to exploit the game is exactly like it was a movie. Mm -hmm. So live audience at the theater, pay TV, uh, archive rights, uh, now digital, and so on and so on. So the similarity between the, the two were, were very, very important. And, and I think that the most important thing for a similar at the time that we came from that business, and so we understood. Now, obviously, uh, AC Milan won, uh, was dominant for a certain period of time. I was lucky to be there for some of them, uh, some of those years, and, and became a, a global brand, as you said before. But, you know, in China, for example, one of the first games they saw live on television were AC Milan games in the early 90s. Uh, now they see the Premier League uh, every Saturday and Sundays. The Champions League, which is so important, comes to China and Far East in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Japan. It is uh, mid-afternoon uh, weekdays in the U.S. Uh, 
So there is not yet the possibility for Champions League to exploit, as uh, Alistair said before, the potential that football has in this world. The Premier League has the luck to play in uh, uh, weekends, uh, uh, 2 p.m., 3 p.m., which is prime time in China, or Japan, which is a nice Saturday morning or Sunday morning in the U.S. And that's the reason why they have such an important uh, uh, revenue coming from overseas rights. Champions League is not there. Interesting. Another question. There's a gentleman right there in the first row. <laughs> Hi, I'm probably direct to you, Alistair. Um, in future football, um, in the words of the IOTORIA, um, as far as FIFA's concerned, is to, to keep on not caring and do not about racism in the game of the moment. Hmm. Um, about racism? Um, no, I mean, I don't think that's really um, an entirely fair criticism. Uh, I mean, for so long as there are recent racist incidents in football, and, and there certainly um, have been some, and it appears to be ongoing, and it's worse in some parts of the world than others, you know, there will be criticism of, uh, of the football governing bodies that they're not doing enough to stamp it out. Maybe we could do more. I mean, following the, some of the recent incidents that were seen in Europe, you could consider uh, things like having a lifetime ban for uh, spectators who have, uh, are found to have engaged in, in racist conduct at a football stadium. That would be quite a draconian measure. But uh, I think if the incident was severe enough, it could certainly be, uh, be justified. Um, I think it's a bit of a truism to say that racism is something which affects uh, society as a whole, not just uh, football. Football, to some extent, is kind of a mirror of society, and uh, I don't think it is uh, it's football bodies that alone will manage to, to cure all racist ills. One thing that I think football can contribute to, though, very positively, is that it is uh, naturally quite a... It, it, should, it should be a, an obvious place where it is possible to uh, ignore people's race and colour. It should be a, a vehicle for uh, integration, especially of uh, migrant communities, and I think... It does perform that role in some countries, and I think that we could do more to enhance that. Uh, it's one of the things that FIFA is uh, positively thinking about. There is a, a role for sport and certainly for football in the areas of health, in education, and in uh, social integration, and uh, that's something that I think that we should uh, think more uh, proactively about. I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that FIFA does nothing about racism uh, less than anyone else. I want to tag along with that and, and just throw it to everyone. It's a question I've been meaning to ask all night. I've been dying to ask all night. Sexism. Is football more sexist than banking? <laughs> well, um, how I came into football was a result of sexual discrimination, actually. When I was working for the fund, I had just delivered my second child. And three weeks later, my boss called me to his office and said, with two very young children, my kids are one and a half years apart, 
that I couldn't keep up with the pace of the fund anymore, that he would terminate my contract, but he could recommend me to Galatasaray as an interim CFO. So that's how I ended up in football. And um, yeah, and um, I worked for a club that is not owned by anybody. It's owned by members, basically. And every two years, there was elections. Every president that usually came in kind of looked at me, why do we have a female CEO, you know, let's just get rid of her. And then um, I survived actually seven presidents and 11 different boards while I was there, so uh, proved to be quite resourceful. Yes, I did face a lot of sexism, but I think the, what, what happens is when you have the courage to run for something and make it to the board, then everybody is extremely um, uh, embracing and helpful. I mean, in the case of the European Club Association, I had the honor to serve with my wonderful friend and colleague, Umberto, on the same board. I think everybody was very surprised when I won the election, but once I was there, everybody was extremely respectful and uh, my my contribution was valued and my opinion was always uh, listened to. So I think it's both ways. It's very hard to crack that ceiling, but once you do, I think you do receive the respect. Um, but not that many people put themselves out there. I think it's really important that mm -hmm. women keep trying. Supply is important. Um, I'm going to th throw a really unfair question to Gabriela. Um, when are we going to see the first female Premier League manager or head coach? Hmm. In the next 25 years? Um, well, I, I would imagine probably sooner than that in the sense that we've had women coaches in, in France and in the second division. Um, uh, We've had our first women's coach in the men's professional game was in Italy more than 20 years ago. Um, Carolina, Carolina Morace. Um, and, and it's weird because you think about it, right? We, we talk about different attitudes, right? We would have thought that it might have happened in, I don't know, Norway, Sweden, right? I, I think Umberto would agree with me that we're slightly more on the chauvinistic end of the scale, the scale traditionally in Italy. But I think it's a little bit, as Ebru said, when you manage to crack through, this particular woman, Carolina Morace, who, you know, she coached briefly, but she was also, and still is, a hugely respected pundit on television talking about the men's game. She does it, I have to say, in a very, very technical way, which can be off-putting to some, but is a, how, like, a lot of Italian male managers talk. And this was in the early 90s. So... It's funny because you, we've all seen here in England in the last couple of years where I think England, you know, you, you guys had, I know not everybody liked her, but although she's probably popular in some quarters here, you guys had a, a female prime minister here uh, in the early 80s. Well, you know, but you've only just now have woman pundits speaking about the men's game. And it's kind of, kind of like a new thing, you know. Um, so I think different countries move at different speeds. But I think once you get there, once you're given the opportunity, if you have the, if you show that you can hang and you're given the respect, you can stick around. Um, so, to answer your question, I, I think it's going to be sooner than 
than 25 years. Well, I will also ask not only the first female manager, but there are still nine clubs out of the top 20 who don't have a female board member. When will they have a female board member? Mm-hmm. How can we make sure that AC Milan doesn't have one, Manchester City doesn't have one, Newcastle doesn't, Liverpool doesn't? And this mirrors, of course, the the challenge that corporations have generally, right? Um, And so in that sense, football reflects life, uh, but there are solutions to those issues, right? Um, And and they can be tried and should be tried, and they're not always being tried, right? I think that's that's the issue. More questions from the floor? Oh, lots of hands up. There's a gentleman over here in purple. Female members in Roma. Roma, yes, I know, I know. Yes, um, my question is around financial fair play. So I'll just read a little quote from um, Tony Banks, um, the sports minister, a few years ago in 1998. He said, they think the goose is going to keep on laying the golden eggs, that it will never stop. Well, I don't buy into that. It could easily go all wrong. So he spoke around um, the influx of money into England between the, from the early 90s. And after that, we saw a boom, and also a boom in revenue, and also a boom in costs. Financial fair play came, and to a large extent, debt went down. However, it could seem that that debt has actually only gone down because of increase in revenue, whereas cost is still going up. So things like player um, wages and also transfer fees is still going up at an alarming large rate. Financial fair play has brought down debt, but it seems as though football, the future of football is hinged on the fragility of revenue. And I mean, we have spoken here around how to explore new sources of revenue, but nobody's really talking about the elephant in the room, which is costs. Can I paraphrase your question by asking Gabriela something, or anyone on on the floor here? The underlying assumption is that money is needed in order to be successful, right? That's sort of the the common production model in football is, with more money, you will be more successful on the pitch. And yet we know that there are models of clubs out there that don't necessarily follow that logic, right, and have had some success. They're small. Atalanta, Udinese, I'm thinking about a number, Leicester City, right? They're clubs that you know, have some amount of money, but not necessarily huge amounts of money, uh, and yet they're able to compete successfully, maybe not on a sustainable basis. But is it really true that the underlying production model in football needs to be about money? Anyone? Uh- well, I, I think over, I mean, from a technical side, I think over time it inevitably is about money um, because, you know, there, there's, a, there's a natural projection. You, you, can, you can't retain, it becomes impossible to retain talent. All those clubs that you mentioned ended up that they couldn't retain their talent, right, whether it was executives or coaches or, uh, or, or, or players. Um, so I think you will always find exceptions because football is a game of chance and probability. And sometimes we, we, we assign too much value to results, uh, as, as you know all too well, in, uh, in knockout competitions and the like. Um, but on, on the issue that you raised with cost, just quickly, I, I'm always amazed. One of the incredible things about football relative to other industries is that this is a sport where anywhere between, depending on the club, anywhere between 50 and 70% of your costs are labor costs, right? And the nice thing about football is that it's not like you're running a factory where, you know, you've got 
got to pay severance and you got to keep track of these people and their pensions and whatever. Every, you know, at a maximum every three years, if you don't like somebody, you can't afford them, they can go. And if you want to get rid of them sooner, you can sell them and get money back. So, you know, just from a very layman's perspective, it's really difficult to accept, you know, for example, what's happened, and I'm digressing a tiny bit, what's happened here in England at clubs like Barry, um, or indeed Bolton, and there it's, it's an issue, this is why one of the things I'm in favor of is more oversight, and above all, above all, more transparency from the clubs. I, I think what you said before, that the question about fans and their connection to the club, the clubs always hide behind this idea of having, oh, we need a competitive advantage, we can't disclose wages, we can't disclose um, transfer fees or whatever. You know, they publish these accounts, which, you know, I'm sure are fine for the UEFA auditors, but the fan doesn't know what's in them, the media doesn't know what's in them. We just get these big baseline figures. If people locally were forced to, if, if cl every club was forced to disclose far more information, if we, we went to them and said, you, you, you are, you have the privilege of exploiting this brand loyalty that exists to clubs. Um, if they had to disclose information loyalty, you can bet that somewhere in Barrie there would have been a, a, a blog, there would have been bloggers, there would have been fans who would have looked at it and would have gone and would have beaten a path to the door of the people running the club and saying, why are we doing this? Um, and obviously there's a big failure of lack of oversight by the Football League as well and many other institutions. But I, I'm all for transparency and sort of crowdsourced vigilance and I think that would solve a lot of the issues that, that we have here. Also because there's nothing we haven't touched upon, but there is generally, uh, especially on transfers, there is, you know, the situation is, and I know you guys have a stakeholder committee that's working on this, but, you know, there's all sorts of shenanigans that go on and still go on with, which, which, which are ultimately damaging to the ownership and damaging to uh, supporters. Alistair, you wanted to get in on this? <clears throat> yeah, I'm just in relation to the point of it, you know, it's, it's only all about money insofar as markets are completely deregulated, which is again the same in the overall economy. If you have completely deregulated markets, then money flows go where they go. But there are plenty of things that can be done about that to address that issue, <coughs> the, the, the pure correlation between money and sporting success, if there's a will and a determination from the relevant bodies to do it. You can have structures like squad size limits. You can have structures like salary caps. You can have uh, a reduction of the loan system. You, you can do all these things if there is a sufficient will to do it. The problems arise when people don't have the appetite to do it because it affects their vested interests. The reason uh, I mentioned the Bosman case uh, in 1995 is because the real revolution in football as well as pay TV, was the Bossman case. And the Bossman case was a very crude regulation, according to which you couldn't have more than three foreign players in your team. No matter how much money you had, you couldn't have more than three foreign players in your team. That rule, like it or dislike it, created a competitive equilibrium of sorts, which was completely lost when the rule was declared illegal, just at the same time that all the money flowed in. Then it was just, it was inevitable that these funds from the biggest TV markets were going to find their ways to a small number of clubs. 
which would also form some kind of cartel over the player transfer system together with their agent buddies, which is what's happened to a large extent in football. And it's an absence of regulation that has allowed this to happen. A lot of people don't like regulation in football as in, you know, the rest of the world. And you can have a different... I, I would prefer a more sensible, equitable regulation. One of the reasons I believe that the English Premier League was relatively successful is because they had, uh, you know, quite a flat distribution model for the revenues generated by the league. So um, there was equal shares to the clubs for, you know, for a substantial amount of the money. And because there was a more sort of egalitarian revenue distribution model, you had a more competitive league. It's the same reason why they ran a salary cap structure in, uh, in the NBA in the United States, a more socialist structure. They didn't do it because they're socialist. They did it because it made more sense to have relative levels of equality if you want to have a competitive league rather than a completely imbalanced situation, which is what we have in European football, which is actually, you know, a sort of prototype capitalist type structure, which is where it got to, owing to the legal environment and owing to the lack of will of people to regulate. And this is just an ongoing thing, as uh, Umberto knows very well. You know, the people that are the richest will say, well, if you regulate us, we're going to run off and form our own private super league. It's been going on for 20 years. And, and this is, you know, you have to kind of uh, deal with that situation in a way which is um, measured, in a way which is politically, I don't know, it's, um, there's, there's a lot of maneuvering around it to try and contain these different pressures. Uh, but it's not to say that, you know, money would, should necessarily determines everything. It doesn't if you choose to make, you know, the world a diff different. As a student of politics, I love that answer, as you can possibly imagine. Uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to politics, doesn't it? So I'm going to take this chair's prerogative. The ref is looking at his, at his watch right now. Um, we have a couple of minutes of added time. I want to sort of uh, end on a fun note. I was going to ask the panelists uh, what they're most looking forward to uh, as they sort of look at the next 25 years of, of football in <coughs> Europe. What is the one thing that excites you the most, that you're most sort of looking forward to, that you're going to enjoy about football, that we're all going to enjoy about football? Anything in particular? Who wants to go first? I'm looking uh, at you, Gabriela. Okay. So, okay, <laughs> I mean, I, all right. There's a basic thing about why we, why we like football, which is the emotions that it engenders in us, whether it's, it's, it's the tension at a, at a football match, whether it's the technical ability, whether it's the, the, the tribalism or, or whatever. Um, and I have to say, that's been a constant. That's not going to go away. That's, that's the power of this game, both of, with people playing it and, um, and, and, and people watching it. You know, that's why it is part of the entertainment industry and the way we experience it is we are entertained by it. We get enjoyment out of it. Um, and I, that is what I'm looking forward to most because I know that that's what's going to be there. That's what I'm sure of will not go away. You're probably looking for a more articulate answer, so I'm going to suggest that um, Alistair's boss 
uh, made the point, uh, I think it was in Paris last year, he said that right now we have rich, very rich people from around the world choosing to invest in football in Europe. Um, and he laid out a scenario where maybe these people will invest in football and develop football in their own regions um, around the world. And I think there are conditions that that can happen. Um, what equally frightens me a little bit is for that to happen, you have to form a local connection to to your local club. You know, um, and, and to some degree, that's going to be difficult. You know, people people my age, there's a disproportionate amount of Milan fans my age because they grew up watching the team that Umberto helped build. In the same way, there's a disproportionate number of people my age who grew up watching Liverpool, and then there's kind of like a lost generation. I'm not talking about scousers. I'm talking about people who have no connection. Most of the rest of the world, there is no history there. You know, you're, if, if you live in, in, in China or India, you know, it's not like, oh, granddad used to go and, and, and sit and, and, and stand in the Stratford end. It's not like that. So you will watch what you see on television. And if what you get force-fed is that, you're not going to go and get involved locally and form the same local connections. And that's the challenge. I think it can be overcome. Um, I'm not confident that it will, but I think it is possible. And I, and I look forward to, to seeing that, seeing hopefully the right people are involved in pulling the levers of power so that can happen. Ibru? Um, I'm looking forward to watching the millennials change the football landscape. Um, I've spent last 20 years either... Uh, defending smaller countries, smaller clubs, the youth, the grassroots, the underdogs, the women who were neglected and pushed out. But now I see that the values of the millennials are really different. And mm -hmm. uh, they will not take it for granted that uh, the existing system will, will continue. And a few things that I read last week really made me smile. Um, one was uh, a PricewaterhouseCoopers latest study on the sports landscape. 94% um, of the people surveyed, it's 580 top level sports people from 49 countries. They're saying innovation um, is extremely important and they say Number one criteria for uh, a successful innovation of the, of the industry is people. And on top of the list, they put diverse, talented, skilled people. So diversity is in the agenda of the, of the tomorrow's you know, leaders. And another one was um, UBS had a report about the investment trends. And the investors that are in the age of 18 to 34 84% of them are saying they want to invest in sustainability, they want to invest in the mega trends. So all of those make me so hopeful that I can now hopefully sit back and watch and let them change the world. I we are so tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Roberto, anything in particular? Well, I've been thinking through what Gabriele said and Ebru said to find a, a nice answer in front of it. Frankly speaking, I really, I really don't know how to add on on this uh, interesting vision that they had. Well, uh, I, I think that uh, both said uh, things that makes a lot of sense. On one side, uh, football will always be there. Uh, we have to be careful about the way we will manage that. Uh, I, I'm very, very 
curious to see the innovation, as Ebru said. Uh, I think that uh, many things that we are talking about now, about diversity, are there already. I mean, I, I, you know, it depends on where you sit. You see a lot of different things happening. But uh, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I'm, I really have no clue. But I understand that a lot of trends that we have to be careful about. There is this uh, fluidity of uh, expectations. There is this uh, uh, different uh, behavior by fans. Uh, so there's a lot of things that uh, will influence the game. Uh, even if I still think that down the road, uh, those who pay the best money for talent will always be on top. If you look at uh, the statistic of the last, I think, uh, five years of the top seven, eight leagues in Europe, uh, the league has been won by number one or number two in terms of payroll. And this is definitely a tendency that probably with uh, the creation of uh, um, companies more than single players, uh, the way that the single players manage themselves will, uh, will increase, I think, and the control of talent will be the most important thing in football in the next year to come. Mm, interesting. Alistair? Um, well, in the year or so that I've been at FIFA, the most uh, sort of rewarding thing I, I think I've been involved in has, has been on the, on the development side. I mean, that's not directly my job, but I, I, was, I spent quite some time in, uh, in Kinshasa, in Congo, where it was quite good to see. It built quite a lot of pitches in the slum, in kind of like inner city, uh, at least uh, a dozen more of them. And, you know, kids were playing on these pitches. This is money that was generated by the Football World Cup, which is then going back to do a development job in places where, where people really need it. And, you know, they're, they're good. They're good at football. Uh, they just need an opportunity to, to demonstrate it and have the infrastructure and the facilities to do it. And I think that uh, sport and football can really play an important social role here. I think there are things that can be done in the area of education and health, integration of migrant communities, gender equality. And I think we should um, really focus on that stuff and make it, and make it happen. And it can. And you can actually use the revenues generated from the very top end in order to help finance that throughout the world. And most parts of the world really need the development funding and the development infrastructure. And if we do that well, it ought to be some, become some kind of virtuous circle where you do the development job, but you actually increase the level of uh, competition, the level of participation uh, across the world. And if we can go some way to making that happen, then that would be, uh, that would be good for me. Well, on that very hopeful note, I would like to thank our panelists for coming to visit with us today and giving us their views.